Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. If you give something and benefit one in ten of the people whose lives you touch, you've done something massive. You've done something massive. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds an FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways alongside a vast experience on individual player and team performance analysis. And as part of our insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. I'm Coach Yas, and today I'm joined by a very special guest today. I've got Keith Bonus with us. Keith is a coach development manager at Palace Football Foundation, um, which is obviously the foundation side of uh, Crystal Palace's community project. Um, how are you, Keith? Very good, thank you, yes. Uh, thanks for asking me on. Brilliant. Um, Keith, I'm not going to waste any time. Uh, I want to get straight into the heart of it. Tell us all where your coaching journey started. <laughs> It's a it's a, a many told story, um, but uh, yeah, the easiest way I can put it is I was nominated um, because I was the oldest player, uh, which sounds weird because I was only eighteen. Uh, so I was in a quite a successful school team um, where I grew up in Stevenage, and we'd won something called the Wicks Trophy at the time, but. We'd come to the end of the school year and, and that team wanted to stay together. So we literally entered the the local Sunday league and uh, it was like, Keith, you're the oldest, um, you're the coach. Uh, I had been the captain um, and I'd captained a lot of the different sports teams at school. So I was kind of recognised as a, as a leader um, and the teachers at the school thought I would go into teaching of some sort. So it almost seemed uh, that was an influencer as well. 
Um, but the, the biggest one was you're the oldest. So I'm not sure that was a compliment or not, but that's how it started. Brilliant. And just in terms of that, you know, did you find, a, I guess, an immediate affinity with coaching or how did that work for you? Yeah, I think, again, because I'd, I, I had this competitive nature and, and I wanted every team or sport that I played in, I wanted to to be successful. I wanted it to be the best, but I was never a, a shout and screamer. I, I would talk quite loudly, but I was always an encourager and a, uh, and had that kind of teaching methodology came into me naturally. Um, so at that time, I didn't realise what coaching per se was, mm. um, but it, it, it kind of came naturally to me. And, and um, But obviously, I still wanted to play as well. So even back then, it was kind of difficult to to play and be the coach stroke manager, if you like. And, and it happened to me for many years to follow as well, where I probably left myself out of a starting 11 at times because I felt uh, the responsibility not to pick myself. So maybe it hindered my playing career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it was an interesting one. I mean, just on that, it's an interesting dynamic that, you know, that whole element of being a player manager or player coach, however you wish to view it in that. Yeah. Sometimes you do feel that you might have to put yourself aside a little bit at times just to almost take one for the team. You might just talk into that a little bit in terms of the challenges that presents and whether it's always the right thing to do in that sense and how difficult it can be to maybe pick yourself over someone else. I think it's definitely not the right thing to do um, if you're one of the better players, but it is a position you put yourself into and it, it happens to me more than once at, at lower level clubs, at sign of amateur clubs and grassroots clubs and ironically... Um, at Carl Shorten, where I'm the head coach right now in the Ithman Premier, I'm working with a player manager who's been player manager for the last three or four years, a guy called Peter Adonai. Um, and he almost, I'm not going to say desperately because that would be insulting him, but he needed another voice or another opinion um, because, again, he, he put himself in the same position. But going back to myself, 100% there was times where I left myself out to accommodate other players um, because I didn't want to upset players and say I was abusing. You get that feeling you're abusing your power by putting yourself in the side. Mm. And then when you're in the side, you can't see the bigger picture from the outside. You see a different picture from the inside. And these are things that I, I learned more about as I grew into coaching and grew into the more experienced years. So at a young age, I think it, it's probably more difficult. Um, but... I kind of balanced it not too badly, but you know, when when I look back, there were certainly games that I felt I could have changed from playing. Um, so it's it's a different dynamic to to push, and I think it depends on what level. I think if you know you get some coaches that did it at the higher levels uh, in in the top top leagues around the world, where they went in as player coach. Didn't happen too often, but there has been examples. It's never been difficult, but they have the luxury of experienced people on the touchline. I think it's okay to do it if you have those other opinions that you that you respect um, and that can give you the right information. But if you're doing it purely and simply when you're, i.e., the Lone Ranger, and you haven't got that backup, I think it's massively difficult. So. <laughs> Um, if I could go back in time, I probably wouldn't do it. Definitely, you know, I think there's it's some key things to kind of take out from that. And one of the things I've always said to coaches that you know I've, I've worked with, and um, you know, one of my roles, similar to yourself, doing some of the affiliate tutoring for the FA, 
you can never see the frame when you're inside the picture. Um, no. So I always encourage no. coaches in that you know, even if it's not in that obviously player coach capacity, which is slightly different, but always have to have a different perspective of things. So if you're always in the middle of the session, how can you see what's happening all over the session? Because you haven't got a 360 view of everything. No, I think if you've got the luxury of that, I mean, let's face it, in these days at the higher level, even a little bit lower level these days, you've got luxury of things like cameras, pro, uh, GoPro, you've got drones and stuff like that now. But I mean, even where we are now at Car Shorten, first half of every game, I sit in the stand mm. at the highest level I can, whether Pete's in the technical area as a substitute or whether he's playing. And again, it, it's actually really beneficial to get both viewpoints from the outside and the inside because I can see someone from the outside and he's feeling something different from the inside. Um, so if, you, if you've got the luxury of that dual perspective, it's definitely a benefit. Um, so it's, it's all about, you know, player, coach. If, if you've got a manager on the sideline and you're a player, coach, it's the same really. Because and again, whether you're the manager, if you've got both, head coach, stroke manager, player, coach, assistant coach. I, ne I never work with those terminologies, by the way. It's me and my colleague, like myself and Pete. We never introduce ourselves as manager, as an assistant. Other people do that, but we we have a real strong mutual respect. And when I've been at, this is the first time I've been what you might call a number two. Um, but even when I've been a head coach at whatever level, whether it's been grassroots, amateur, semi-pro, national level, I always introduce my staff as my colleague, say this is my number two, this is my assistant. Um, and I think to have that kind of respect is a real a really important factor in, in, in my way of working anyway. Definitely. I think that obviously that, that that's something that then would hopefully breed onto the group of players that you're working with. I just want to take you back to your journey a little bit now. You know, obviously you're saying there about uh, starting off maybe being a player coach in that respect. Where did the journey go from there? Well, this was at 18. I mean, at younger years, I'd been at, at Chelsea development years and actually I broke my leg twice. Um, so at that, that level, um, I, I played what you would class as semi-professional um, down in Stevenage and, a, and at a club called Nebworth. Mm. And some managers there that kind of names from the past, like Alan Gilzine and, uh, and Sean Brooks's dad, um, Sean Brooks used to play with Crystal Palace. He's Johnny Brooks, he was the manager of Nebworth. Alan Gilzine was was manager of Stevenage back in the day. Um, but from that that time, um, nineteen got to nineteen eighty six. Um, I moved. I gave up playing. In my head, I gave up playing. I was I was only in my late twenties, but I gave up playing because I'd uh, I'd met my second wife then um, and got the chance to come and, and get a pub down the, uh, just off the old Kent road and uh, Woolworth. Um, and it was a business ironically that my parents had been in, in the, in the, in the past, like my parents' family, my mother had always wanted to go into that trade because her family had been in it. And it was almost like, I'll ping my mother wanted to do it, but my dad never did. Unfortunately, both my parents passed. But when I got the opportunity, I thought, ah, oh, my mum always wanted that. It was her dream. I'll, I'll go and give that a go. And so I moved into uh, a pub in Elstead Street in Woolworth, just near the Aylesbury Estate, and thought I wouldn't. I would be giving up playing, ironically. But uh, little did I know, 
So <laughs> that very quickly moved on to, oh, you were involved in football. A lot of the, the lads coming into the pub, even the dads all loved football. Um, obviously, it was um, Millwall territory. Um, yeah, Chelsea, Arsenal, the usual. But they all wanted, oh, we're going for a kickabout over in Burgess Park. Um, so I went for a kickabout and that kickabout turned into about 30 odd people. <laughs> And it was oh well we should we should get a team going out of the pub so basically that that's what we did and we joined what was then the old London Sunday League and it developed into having three men's teams uh, an under sixteen and an under twelve team all all playing out of the pub under the name of uh, Huntsman and Hounds and uh, and then went into the Metropolitan uh, Sunday League then which was the real strong one at that time. Yeah. Uh, and was was very successful D well, during that period. I got the chance to do what was then the old preliminary award. Um, Millwall um, Community Scheme put it up to run at Southwark Park on the old uh, sandy carpet, um, the old week long course on the preliminary badge. So it was only twelve pound. Wow. So I thought, oh, that sounds good. Knowing knowing that I'm trying to run these teams and coach these teams and. Um, based what I'd, I'd had a taste of. Um, so I went and did that course and my tutors were Les Reed, who is now back as technical director of the FA. Um, that, we're talking back in the 80s yeah. now, late 80s. And uh, Nicky Milo, who, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but he was director, academy director at Millwall and Charlton at QPR during his day. He actually became a really, really close friend in later years. Uh, when I became a tutor, we worked alongside each other. Um, to be fair, I'm still fairly friendly with Les. Um, and I did that course and passed it. And Les actually said, you know, you're a natural at this. Have you thought about taking it up as a as a more uh, serious profession? And I said, well, where, where do I go from here? And then, back then, it was only the next step was the the FA advanced license. There was no UEFA B. There was no, you know, there's no UEFA involvement yeah. then. So, uh, yeah, I applied to go on the advanced licence, I think it was in 91, 1991. Um, and, I, and I went, I got accepted and I went and I think I was the lowest um, level player stroke coach that was there. I, I was actually put onto the pro course. So I was in amongst uh, the Everton player, Peter Reid, Tony Curry, Jerry Armstrong, mm. Uh, Des Bremner, um, Alan Kennedy, Ray Hankin, Stuart Robson, uh, Alan Irvin. And I'm like, wow, I, I pulled into the car park at Lillishaw, which is where it was then, a two-week yeah. um, really intensive course in my old transit van and, and all these Mercs and Jeeps and Rollers and Bentleys like coming into the car park. Uh, so it was a massively daunting time for me, um, very intimidating. Um but eventually, uh, obviously, I calmed down and and I didn't pass it first time of asking. I, I had a cruciate injury as well, so I was in a little bit of pain at that time. Um, and I didn't pass it, but I actually became really good friends with uh, with uh, a, a guy that then became a tutor, moved on, um, Colin Reed. Um, at that time, um, and also. Um, met John Sitton, who you could say is famous or infamous, um, whichever way you want to look at him, you know, the ex-Orient manager from the video. 
Um, so I met people like that, uh, and Ozzy Abanji and, and, and a few others. And it was a massive experience for me, even though I didn't pass it, I soaked in all the information and I took on board, you know, where I saw where people were being successful, doing well. Um, and then I went back two years later and, and I passed it with flying colors and, and basically straight away then in 94, I was offered the chance to, to become a tutor in Kent on the old preliminary badge to start with. Okay. And during that time, I'd continue to coach at semi-pro level, amateur level, um, Spartan League, County League. Um, and I'd started to look towards trying to form my own club. So, 96, um, I moved to another pub in uh, near Crystal Palace in, in Penge. And whilst I was there, I bought... Um, ground down at Blackheath Village. It was the old Siemens Plessy ground. And I formed a club or with, with other people. With uh, a, We kind of amalgamated my team with a couple of other teams. We formed a team called AFC Blackheath and entered the Kent County League at that time. And with all good intentions of building a mini stadium, we bought the old floodlights from Margate Football Club. And because I'd been a centre of excellence director down in Margate, that's another side of the story. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I won't say any more yet. I'll let you ask questions yeah, on that because there's a lot more little, to add. You touched there, obviously going through the you know the prelim yeah. and then the advanced license, um, and obviously things have changed dramatically over the years. What would you say some yeah. of the major changes you've observed um, in particular with the coach education system and how it was then and how it is now? Obviously, you touched on they're not maybe passing first time round there. Um, we've moved to a you know in a completely different direction as it is now in that it's more of an ongoing assessment. It's not quite a uh, fail element to it. Um, I think you get a set time frame that you you, you know they you anticipate completing the qualification qualification within, um, but you never. Well, I, yeah. I mean, obviously, I've been involved in every single change there's yeah. been, and it, it it's actually been at times quite quite daunting, and you'll get some, um, certainly older coaches, but even some younger coaches when you tell them about the way it was, they actually say, "I'd rather have done it that yeah. way." Because um, you did know, you know, you knew at the end, even of the prelim, you knew at the end of the week whether you'd passed or not. The six-day course, you did a written exam and you knew whether you'd passed or not. Um, when you're doing the ongoing stuff, you kind of, you know, it's more stretched out um, and then you still might not pass. Mm. Um, so there's pluses and minuses to everything. And I think the, the, the way we had to teach on those courses as well, the amount of i.e. demonstrations and practical elements were far, far more. And I think I, I, I added it up one day on the old preliminary course. There was something like 82 different practices that we tried to cover demonstration-wise, wow. let, let alone three each. So in that week, you would do a, a technical practice, a skill practice, and a 6v6. Yeah. And we had to show all of those, or at least a good section of all of those different types of practices before we ask the students just to do it. That then, you know, you talk there about the tutor delivery aspect in terms of all the practical elements. Now, I've had a conversation with a lot mm -hmm. of coaches about this and, you know, over over the recent changes in how, and I'm sure we're going to come onto it as well, but in particular how the courses have maybe taken less emphasis now around the technical, tactical stuff and much more focused around the other three corners, i.e. the social, the psych and the physical corners, in that there's a lot more focus on those 
meaning less practical delivery from the tutors and a lot more, I guess, creative freedom, I guess, for the learners to kind of um, play around with around what, what works for them in their environment. Now, a lot of coaches who I've spoken to recently, when well, I say months and years now, uh, have shared some frustration because they feel that maybe previously where they would maybe would have come on and seen all those different sessions delivered and maybe use that as a, a reference point or a guidance or some sort of uh, source of information in terms of the technical and tactical side of things, they're almost left to their own devices a little bit more now. What, what are your thoughts on that? Again, talking to um, colleagues of mine, again, older, experienced colleagues and newer coach shooters like obviously Peter did his, his level two and his level three with me before he moved on to get his A and became a tutor. And I know he'll be one of those that has probably, you know, talked about it in that vein. I think we all agree. Um, you know, the bottom line is the same for me. A lot of students that contact me independently and privately will always say, I, I want to see that. I haven't seen that. Well, in this day and age, a lot of people will say, well, you can find it on YouTube or you can find it here or you can find it there. But there's no substitute for actually seeing it in front of your face where you can ask that immediate question or or uh, you know, see, see the cure or see a physical demonstration in front of your eyes that you can then look to adapt or question at that moment. If you're looking at videos, you can't ask questions. You've got to send a question and hope you get an answer. Mm. The physical presence and the interaction between good tutors and good uh, demonstrators for me is still massive. And I, and I still run CPD days in my role uh, with as coach development for, for Palace and my connections to Carl Shorten. Like Carl Shorten has something like 40 youth teams. So I've done four days with them where they get 35, 40 coaches come in and we go out on the pitches and we practice sessions. Mm. I show sessions, uh, encourage them to help, encourage them to chip in. And we might do, okay, you, here's one for you. You go and set that up and then we'll start it and I'll, I'll help you do it. And, and it, for me, it's a, it's a combination of the tutor and, uh, and the learners putting it across. Uh, and even the old days where, you know, it was tough physically for the learners to join in and be the mm. players. But again, for me, it's balance. It's, it's amazing um, how many people miss that. And it's okay using teams, using players, using young players. But part of the buzz of, of certainly for me, you imagine me on that advanced license when I got to play in 8v8s and 11v11s with some of the best pros in the country, England players. You imagine the buzz I got joining in that. So, But I think whenever I've seen courses where the the, the learners are joining in. That's part of their enjoyment. They st they're still players at heart. I think footballers never stop being kids. They never stop wanting to play, even if they might be hopping on one leg. I think you know it's. Uh, and I think it's a balance. Um, and I use that word a lot. I think it's it's you know discovering the same as you would players, even with coaches. It's discovering what they need, what they want. Uh, and I, I do a lot of that. You know, I ask before I run those days, I, I kind of send out a little mini questionnaire. It could be a, a survey monkey on, on online or anything saying, tell me what you want me to do. Tell me what you yeah. want to see. Rather than me say, I'm going to force feed you this. You tell me what you need because you're working at different levels. You're working at different age groups. You're working with 
boys, girls, etc., etc. Tell me what you need to see, and, and I'll pull that out of somewhere for you. And I'll show you the way that, that I see it. Then we can talk about it. Then we can manipulate it. Then we can adapt it to fit you if you don't think that fits. Definitely. And I think just within that, you know, it is about having the adaptability and using maybe what you do as almost a a framework. And I think that's where a lot of, certainly from my experience, you know, what firstly coming through as a coach and obviously now in, in a tutoring capacity where, where I do is a lot of coaches want you to almost give them the answer. Um, but don't understand, you know, so I think we've all been there at times where maybe we've seen a session somewhere, we've liked the idea of that session, looks great, and we think, oh, yeah, I'm going to take that, I'm going to go do that with my players, and it doesn't quite work out. I think just highlights the further, you know, what you've touched on there around what is it that you need, and I think it's really taking this idea of the session that I'm putting on, but actually seeing how does this apply and tie into the needs of your players. Is it going to work for your players? Do your players need the same aspect of the session or is it, is it might you might use the same structure of the session but maybe focus on a different element of it because that that's what your players need in that given moment um i just want to take you back to obviously your coaching journey now you know you've had quite a quite a long career really obviously you've gone back to the 90s obviously talking there about your, or even late 80s with the qualifications there um now i want to fast forward a bit you know to your time at tooting and mitchum um just want to talk about how that maybe came came around for you, and obviously, am I right in thinking that you initially started playing there? Uh, sorry, I was what? Um, just want to take you forward to your time. Yeah, yeah. Tootin and Mitchum, I got that. Um, just wanted to see in, in your in your time there how that came about. Um, working with the teams I was on on Saturdays and Sundays at the time, I, I had a player that played for me in one of the Sunday sides who was a uh, playing for Tootin and Mitchum on the Saturday. And they were struggling at the bottom of the uh, at the Ryman Second Division at the time, um, with the manager at that time, um, and he just he'd spoken to the chairman about me because he knew that I was the Surrey County coach. Um, he knew that I was a coach educator. I had an A license, and he'd worked with me in in those other clubs. And basically, he'd said, you know, you're better than the manager we've got. You've got more knowledge than the manager we've got. You know, have you thought about working in in that next level up from where we were? And I said, well, yeah, of course, I, I'm I'm interested to hear what anyone's got to say. Um, so he arranged the meeting for me then with the then chairman, a guy called John Buffoni, and I met him over at Surrey Docks um, in a pub, ironically, uh, and literally just sat at a picnic table and had a chat about me, who I was, and 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 what I felt. Um, and obviously, non-league then, even a little bit now to a point, they've got that reputation as if you've got to know players, you've got to know who the journeymen are, you've got to know which players to bring in. And of course, all I talked about was, no, I don't care what players you've got there, I'll work with them and, and I'll I'll coach them and I'll try and make them better players. Um, and, and I know a few youngsters and, you know, we'll try and develop something. And basically, there was an established squad there at that time. And obviously, they were all on whatever agreements and stuff they were back then. So I went in in that first year um, with the squad that was there. I brought in a couple of players. Right then, I was really um, good friends with um, Leroy Ambrose, the ex-Charlton yeah. player. Um, his son um, played as well. His, his eldest son, Lee. Uh, and I knew a couple of other players that were playing at a lower level that I felt 
could still play at that level or step up to that level. So I brought them in. I had a, a Maltese international called Jamie Pace um, that I brought down from, I think he was playing at Barton Rovers, but he knew, again, a friend of mine. Um, so he came down. And that year we finished 11th in the end. So Ian Hazel was my player coach then, the ex-Wimbledon player, who went on to take the team over after me. Um, so he was a steady, steady head, if you like, and he, he knew players as well. But with that squad, we finished 11th. Now, the following year, um, we couldn't recruit an awful lot. We didn't recruit many more. And I just think at the time it was budget. I think I was running that whole team on, on less than, than eight, nine hundred pound a week, the whole team, including the staff. I wasn't taking anything. Um, they were giving it to me, but I was using it to, to pay the staff, the kit man, the goalkeeping coach, because I brought in a goalkeeping mm. coach. I brought in a, a, a physio S&C coach. So I was giving them what, what you would say drinks in those days. Um, and the players were obviously getting paid in brown envelopes. Um, so we ended up finishing mid-table again then, but there was a, a, a lot of, uh, from some of the supporters, it was my first experience of being called uh, a useless uh, wanker, for want of a better way of putting it, and, and told to, to time to go, you, you, you don't know what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. So um, I was like, oh, okay, actually I do. Um, and I do remember remember reacting uh, probably the wrong way in one of the last mm. games where I, I I went up to the the guy in the stands and said, "Well, come on then, that, that, if that's what you want to, let's do it properly." And uh, obviously, I didn't. But um, yeah, I, I I did let it get to me, and and I went up to the chairman and the board that day and I said, "Look, if you want me to go? I'll go. I've got plenty of other things I can go and do, and I don't need to put up with that." Um, I said, "But I said I think." You know, I'd like one more go now because now I know I can see with that squad what I need yeah. to change. And literally, we cleared out the whole squad. And I mean the whole squad. So pre-season, first pre-season, I had one player. And some of the fans turned up and went, oh, my God, what's going on? But I knew we had um, irons in the fire, so to speak. Um, and through Ian's contacts and one or two others, we we basically picked up the nucleus of uh, what was then the Leatherhead squad that had got promoted. Um, and they were upset with something that had happened there and they'd heard that I was a decent coach. Um, so we got that whole squad back, um, plus some more youngsters. We got that whole squad with us, plus some more youngsters. And I had um Nigel and Tony Webb goalkeeper and centre forward um and Nigel I think the forward got 52 goals that season um obviously we won the league that year uh, and we did that phenomenal thing right at the end of the season where we had to play something like 12 games in the last 20 weeks or 17 weeks we had to, uh, sorry 17 days or 20 days we had to play 12 games um and it was phenomenal um I think we only lost the last game. So we went through the season almost unbeaten uh, with the highest goal scorers, least goals. We had a good run in the FA Vars. Uh, we got to the Surrey Cup final, played Crystal Palace. or We lost the final, um, but, but won the league, clearly got promotion. I, I won Coach of the Year. Um, yeah, and got where where we wanted to go. But 
during that previous that season i'd also that's when i'd started working with charlton athletic mm. women's program so i'll cut off there that's answered your yeah, question there you yeah, can I ask the next one we've gone into a lot of detail there. i think you know you spent a lot of time in the in the you know the women's game leading on from that so you know you eventually going from there to charlton and then beyond that you you know you ended up spending quite a few years aboard um, in estonia how did that come about you know what were some of the key things that you kind of really picked up over there and in terms of the differences both culturally and obviously, you, want, you know, in coaching as well. So you want me to jump over the eight years at Charlton and go to Estonia now? That, that, where no, you're I'm going to bring you back to that. I'm going to bring you back to that. Okay, we'll go yeah. to Estonia then. Um, I, I'd obviously been at the, the David Beckham Academy for three yeah. years um, and I'd run Charlton's college programme. Right. And through being part of that programme, I was then also asked to do the English college's women's national rep side post 16 and i worked with a coach called mel ray who's currently the women's team manager up at sunderland and gillian coulthard who was at, based at durham then but she's a previous england international she was before the new regime came into the england setup etc she was the most capped england player and and i was working with them with that side and ironically uh, estonia contacted Jill through another contact and asked if she'd be interested in the role. But she was only a B license at the time and she didn't want to leave the country. And she said to me, would you come over and help me? So originally I, I gave my CV to, to go over there kind of part-time to assist her if she took the job. She then chose not to. Then uh, about a month later, I got a random email just saying, you know, we've seen your CV. Would you consider coming over and meeting with us and uh, and consider the role? Well, I'd always harboured ambitions of working internationally in, in some way, shape or form. I'd previously applied for the England women's role after my time at Charlton and been turned down. And I'd seen on the, the job descriptions to get those kind of roles, you needed, ideally, you needed a international experience you needed tournament experience you needed a pro license etc 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 so for me this was a way of ticking those boxes um so initially i went over i had a, a a couple of days over there just walking around looking at the place it was in the summer uh, it was a beautiful country i met some some nice people had some good conversations um but you know i said yeah i'm interested and anyway i flew back and I didn't hear anything. Then again, probably two months later, I got an email going, well, do you want the job or not? So well, you haven't made me an offer. <laughs> you know, you've sent yeah. me nothing since that visit. You've said, it was just like a nod of the head, if you like. Yeah, I'm interested. Okay, that's good. But sent me no job description, no salary, no nothing. What would the conditions be? So that came across and I looked at it uh, and I spoke to some other colleagues. Obviously, I spoke to my wife, family, um, advisors, um and and i agreed to go so i went over for one more visit just to to sign on the dotted line uh and then i flew over there in the january of 2009 in the winter so that was a landed at the airport in six foot of snow uh minus eight minus ten put in a little motel saying, oh, tomorrow we'll take you to the stadium to do the press conference and then show you, you know, the accommodation and everything else. And I remember lying in that hotel room that night. Bear in mind, I left my wife here in England in tears. 
Um, and I remember lying in that motel room. Uh, I think I shed a few tears myself thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? I was freezing in the room. Um, the TV didn't work. Um, and it was a really basic motel. Couldn't get any food. Didn't know how close we were at that time to to walk in 10 minutes. And there was a whole old town full of bars and restaurants that were open and thriving. But they didn't give us any information. They literally dumped us there. And I thought, oh, crikey, what have we done here? Because um, I actually went over there with a, a colleague for the first year who came and, and was my um, my fellow coach there. So, yeah, but the next day, to be fair, took us to the stadium, very well-organised press conference with the president and everybody and and so on. And, and then they took me to show the apartment I would get, which was a very, very nice apartment in the middle of town in the capital. It was in a, a heated building, lift access, underground parking, massive tub in the bathroom, big balcony, um, and gave me a car, phone, laptop, showed me my office. Um, and that's kind of when I perked up a little bit and thought, oh, maybe I've, it's not yeah. so bad. And then lots of things followed. It's, it's a really long story, as I don't know how, how much you might just yeah, want to no, ask snippets of it. I just wanted to really get, capture that bit there in, a, in an image there. Now, yeah. now, I just want to kind of delve into your time at Charlton. So obviously in 2000, you took the role at Charlton while still initially working with the, you know, to the Michelin side. Um, yeah. Now, you touched on also working with, you know, with the David Beckham Academy towards the, towards the back end of that, that, that time at Charlton, obviously before you moved on to Estonia. What would you say were yeah. some of the key things in those two, uh, those two roles in particular, obviously spanning over eight years, that, w- that you felt maybe really prepared you um, to actually then go and obviously do that role in Estonia because you, t- you talked there about you know having some of that additional experience and using that Estonia almost um, you know not not to put any d- discredit on it but almost as a stepping stone to maybe get to ne- the next stage of your, your journey and your um, and wherever you wanted to achieve next. What would you say are some of the key things that you picked up in that time? Well, obviously, being eight years at Charlton in the women's game and working with some of the players I did, I, I not only worked with what were current internationals, which also includes my wife, um, but also worked and uh, with and developed international players during my time there. So I think I've done a top up that over 24 players that I was involved in working with and coaching went on to represent England, either at youth level or senior level that actually I worked with or played for me. Um, so you get to know the mentality and, and the prime example would be obviously my wife, Kopi, who was the goalkeeper for England at the time, and, and Casey Stoney, who uh, it's well documented that she was going to quit playing for England in 2005 and I stopped her doing that and she obviously went on to, to captain England and captain Great Britain. And I worked with uh, Eniola Aluko, I worked with Farrell Williams, Katie Chapman, um, and I mean, any other Luco used to drive down from Birmingham and get home at two o'clock in the morning because she wanted to play for 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 my team, which was a massive compliment to to me and us. And it wasn't about money, I can assure you, because um, they weren't on great money; they were only on expenses. Um, so it was about knowing that they were being coached well and knowing that they were uh, being treated with respect and and given opportunities to to flourish and develop and. You know, I was proven right in almost every single case where, where I, I knew I knew any would become. And I think I made the quote after we won the FA Cup in 2005. I said, she'll be something special in Euros and she'll be special in years to come. 
and and she proved me right as well. So I think I'm a you know one of my expertise is is, is certainly developing youth players, whether it's male yeah. or female. But obviously it, it ended up being more in the female games. That's the way the journey took me. Um, the the first year with Tootin and Mitchum, I was literally tooting and Mitchum until the end of the day. And if the team had gone up to Doncaster or Sunderland, I had to get a train or or get up there myself. I was well, it's not much different now, to be honest. Football football monopolised my life. I was either coach education, coaching, managing, whatever. I, it, it was seven days a week, yeah. full on, um, and in different different elements of the game. So I think that diversity, that variation, obviously you learn from everything you do, including any mistakes you make. So I think it gave me massive um, weapons for the future where I, I could, I learned very quickly, and it's an analogy I've always used in, in coach education, is that you've got to be a little bit schizophrenic. You've got to have different heads for different jobs um, for different days. And obviously I learned to, to, to differentiate between kids coaching I've also worked with mencap, working with female players, male players, boys, girls. I've I learned to be able to switch from one to the other purely through experience and putting myself into that into that um, environment, if you like. And I know you talk about coming out of your comfort zone. I, I, I don't think you come out of a comfort zone. I think you expand mm. it. So I think I expanded my comfort zone. Um, not tried to break out. I just expanded it. Uh, because I love the game so much, I can't see if I'm coming out of my comfort zone. You know, maybe I'm going into an area that's not related to what I enjoy. Uh, so to come out of my comfort zone, we go out of football. Anything within football is not out of my comfort zone. No, Does that make sense? No, I just want to take you back. So, um, yeah. And, and obviously, then the David Beckham Academy came along. It was an assistant director with Ted Dale, who I'd worked with in coach education. And we built up a, a really strong coach education program there, but the schools programs we had there and the other events we had there were phenomenal. It was a fantastic place to work. And again, met so many different people. So again, I just got used to, I, I don't know how to say it, almost bouncing around different personalities, different makeups of people, you know, different, um, even different cultures, because again, we, you know, we had we had um, people from France coming in there, we had people from Spain coming in there, and and different schools from all over the UK, uh, and obviously different challenges. And as well, again, we did a lot of disability stuff. So again, all those different things add to your folder, and and I just got used to, I won't say taking it in my stride because everyone gets tired, but yeah, I was. You know, you were talking about 12, 14-hour days, seven days a week at times, me going in between different roles. And I've, I've kind of maintained that throughout Just my career. That, you know, you talk there about, you know, 12, 14-hour days. And, you know, realistically, yeah. the key thing to kind of take away from that is that, you know, you, you've loved it so much. You've done it with such passion that you, it's almost, yeah. it's, in a sense, run your life a little bit. Now, you know, there's a lot of people who are probably in a similar position and maybe in a, in a challenge, in a way, in trying to maintain that work-life balance um would you mind just talking to that a bit and in terms of how difficult that could be and obviously save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Especially when you've yeah. got a family, you know, they don't, yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah. take your work home with you and things like that. So what are some of the challenges they have? How have you gone about dealing with that? And is there really a way that you can deal with it? Or is it just, no, this is what it is. You've got to deal with it. That's a great question. And um, it's, it's hard for me to say if I've got any regrets, that that might be it because I didn't, I didn't balance it well enough because certainly when I was still in business and I was doing a lot of the stuff I was doing when I still had the businesses, when I took the gamble on the ground down at Blackheath, um, I ended up there. Um, that, that lost me money um, and it lost me my businesses and it cost me my second marriage, um, which was the one I had my two children with. So I've got a son and a daughter now who are 30 and 26 27 um but um fate's a funny thing in that sense because i was working in uh the pub trade then as well as trying to do all the football stuff um it did it did stretch me away and where i risked finances with the club although my wife supported me because when we looked at it as a business venture it looked viable when it started to go wrong, it caused real problems at home um, and caused arguments with family, etc., etc. And, and it ended up with me making myself bankrupt um, so that my family could survive. Um, I, I never left the area, so I, I saw my children on a regular basis, still took them to school, etc., etc. But I was literally unemployed and out of work for a couple of months claiming the dole. Um, and went through, you know, a few dark times. And, and obviously, you use that as a learning curve. Um, I did. And uh, I did a recent mental health program where, you know, I told that story a little bit deeper. I, I don't really, you know, I won't go into it again now. But um, the realisation of that is, or if you like, I started coaching again more on a full-time basis. So I started looking more for coaching work. And that was my first venture over to the USA. So I went over and worked with one of these companies in the US on a, a three-month secondment in uh, in Minnesota. And that's where I got the the first contact with the female game. Mm. Uh, that was the first time I coached girls. So, you know, when I came back from there and I did a, a level two in Kent, um, there was a, a female on that course called Deb Brown, who was the female football officer at Charlton and, and she's the one that enlisted me to to start the work at Charlton and it's again it's funny how fate works out because obviously later on after that I met my current wife I was actually coaching her nephew on a, a soccer camp for a friend and we were introduced and that was you know they she was playing for Croydon women at the time but then Charlton ended up taking over that team and she became my goalkeeper but We've been together 20 years now and, and very happily married. And obviously her being a, she's an England goalkeeper. And she was very, very understanding as much as it upset us both when I went to Estonia because she stayed here. Yeah. So um, I think 
families recognise the passion, and I, and I know even now, my colleague at Carshorton, Peter, he's got five daughters, all young daughters, and I know how long he spends down at Carshorton six days a week, um, and he's got five daughters to take yeah. care of, and all young, and I know he finds that a challenge. I don't think there's a perfect answer, aside from you need your family to be supportive, but my warning um, to anybody is, you know, make sure you do prioritise your family. If if there's any any inkling that it could have an effect on it, then, you know, take stock and take another look at what you're doing uh, and prioritise what you're doing. It's an ironic twist to this, and I'll finish on this subject on this one. During lockdown, just before lockdown, my wife was telling me, because um, I'm 61 now, you're doing too much. You need to give up something. Because, again, I'm out six, seven days a week, go out early in the morning, get back late at night, and it's coaching this or helping friends, doing voluntary sessions, going and doing something, going and watching somebody. And uh, she said, you've got to give something up. Well, since lockdown, she's now begging me to take it all up again. Because <laughs> 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 she's sick of the sight of me. So. <laughs> There's your irony. Brilliant. Um, you know, so just you know, moving forward now. Obviously, you know, you had your time at Estonia. Um, you said, well, it was seven years in total. I think it was with them, wasn't it? Seven and a half, yeah. nearly eight. So how, yeah. how was that? What were yeah. some of the major differences you found in that? Was it? I mean, it was a three-year contract initially, but when I first went there and, and I looked at what they wanted me to do and what I felt needed doing, I actually told them it's a ten-year job. Um because I did a five-year strategic plan and, and it was basically, you know, it was, there was very little there. I mean, it's a very small country anyway. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's only 1.25 million, the whole mm. country. Um, and girls, there was only, there was less than 500 female players in the whole country. Um, and the league was very weak. There was no uh, children's structure. Um, and basically they, you know, they wanted me to, to develop it from the bottom up. So it was a case of grassroots upwards, but also to almost try and make an initial impact on the national structure. So I think we were 92, 94 or something in the FIFA rankings. Um, but the first two years we were, we were very, very successful with it, um, but the first training session, I walked out in uh, Mr. FA coach in my shorts and my socks and it was minus 10 and all the girls came out dressed like Eskimos looking at me like I was absolutely nuts. And within 15, 20 seconds, I was back indoors sticking on thermals and <laughs> and saying, yeah, you carry on while I go and put clothes on. So uh, my legs turned pink immediately and uh, uh, icicles appearing on my nose. Um, but there were sheets of ice on the AstroTurf, they only had, they didn't have an indoor when I first went, they only had one heated AstroTurf at the main stadium, but that still had sheets of ice on it. And in England, you wouldn't have played on it. You'd have gone, no, health and safety, uh, 0800, no win, no fee. Um, but they just, they just, it was normal to them. So, you know, we, that was our first look at the national team players. And of course, the first thing you've seen is, well, they've got to be tough because this doesn't phase them. Um, technically, You'd say, okay, not great, um, but okay. Uh, and then we started looking at the youth teams and I think the first under 17 group, we pulled in 20 girls, which was the absolute limit anyway. Um, 
some of them could even juggle the ball without dropping it out of their hands. So you're talking under eights, under sevens level in this country at that time. And these are under 17s. And, and I looked at my colleague and said, well, and he said to me again, what have we let ourselves in for? And I'm, well, it's a challenge. Come on, come on, let's, let's take stock. So we obviously had to regress right the way back with that, even with that age group and start working on real basic stuff. You know, just ball skills, ball manipulation. Um, so as time went by, we built it up and we built it up and I invited people over. So Pauline came over and did some goalkeeping clinics for me. Um, I had a couple of other friends come over helping with camps. And, and I started looking at their coach education program as well to see what they're teaching their coaches to teach. Um, so that wasn't at the highest level either. And certainly their lower awards wasn't, uh, teaching enough of, of how to teach those age yeah. groups, if that makes sense. So I managed uh, after time to get myself involved in that as well. Uh, and we did build it up in that, that first couple of years. We were really successful even with the senior team. So we went and played in a tournament in Armenia. We won that. Um, and then we played what was known as the Baltic Cup, which was the local countries, the Baltic nations. We won that quite easily. And, and I just said to their their uh, media people. I said, for me, this was a no-brainer. I, I knew we'd win these. And it, well, how did you know? I said, I just knew. Because I knew the the players I had were good enough to do that. But I also then, in my mind, almost gave my players too much credit. Right. Um, because I then went off, because I knew we were going to be playing in the Euro qualifiers or the World Cup qualifiers, the World Cup qualifiers for the first time. And I knew in our group, we had Iceland and France, Northern Ireland, Serbia, Croatia. So the Euros was on in Finland that year. So I drove over to Finland. You get across to Helsinki in two hours from Tallinn. So I drove over there to scout those games. Uh, and I remember doing loads of analysis and information on, on all those that, that were playing in that, which was France and Iceland in particular. Uh, and looking at France and thinking, yeah, they've got Nasib, they've got, uh, they've got uh, yeah, yeah. looking at Iceland, they play this way. Uh, and of course, our first game was against Iceland in Reykjavik. So that was my first ever World Cup qualifier. Uh, my wife surprised me by flying to Iceland and without telling me and turned up at the hotel on the day of the game, got on the bus and she came to the stadium with us. And I think there was about 4,000 in the stadium. Um, and we were eight nil down in... 20 minutes every time they they attacked down either side they crossed and scored um and i'd gone for a three five two system based on what i knew about our players at that time uh, and we got destroyed in the first half and obviously at half time i changed it and it ended up 12 nil so we only conceded four in the second half but they were so powerful and they were full-time players and, and you know my players were students mothers totally amateur players and, and I hadn't realised how massive the gap was because we'd won those other games quite comfortably yeah. um, and based on what I'd seen with Iceland um, I, I didn't think we'd win it by any way shape or form but that 8-0 and, and Pauline said to me I was looking down at you in the technical area thinking you've given up our life at home for this Uh but again, at half time, you know, they, they kind of responded to what we said and what we then learned. Um, 
so the following few weeks, we obviously we worked a lot on defending and, and team shape and team pattern. And because we knew the next game was France, who were even higher ranked. And we played them away as well in La Havre. And 10,000 supporters. And I had a 16-year-old girl with me who'd never played in the national team, but she was decent technically. Um, but to give you a, an inkling, not one Estonian supporter came over to watch. And if I was her mum and dad, I'd have swum swam the ocean to come and watch my kid play. But they, they had no interest in that. So the girls were really kind of isolated. Um, so it was us. It was us, that team, us and those girls against 10,000 French and and the team. But we'd worked really strongly on our defensive stuff and 30 minutes, it was nil-nil. And Bruno Beanie, who was the manager at the time, was a heavy smoker and he'd smoked about six packets of fags on the touchline because um, they wanted to stay up with Iceland in the group. And, of course, 30 minutes, all of a sudden, first goal went in, but they started coming through essentially. We'd stopped wide attacks. They started coming through essentially and running one-on-ones at us, and they were killing us. And they scored six goals in the last 15 minutes of the first half. And that game finished 12-0 as well. So my, my challenge then was, and I, and I made it my mission, we would never lose to anybody by a higher scoreline. So whatever happens next time we play them, it won't be double figures. It won't be double figures. And that was the mission then. But to be fair, after that, obviously we went back, we knew what we had to do. We knew we had to improve fitness levels. I asked their FA to give me more contact time with the players. So they were released from their clubs once a week. So we literally trained once a week with the national team squad. I went around and did sessions with the club teams and tried to identify other players. And I found out we had a couple of players playing overseas. We had a girl playing in Germany and a girl playing in Sweden. So we brought them in um, and things improved. And, and we ended up that year, we ended up beating Northern Ireland. We beat Croatia and we beat Serbia. And uh, that won me coach of the year in Estonia that year. And we finished mid-table in the group. And the next time we played Iceland and France, we only lost 5-1 and 6-0. So that's massive improvement against that level of team. And our ranking went up to something like 74. Um, so it's a hugely successful moment. And uh, as well as all of that, obviously, we were looking to build up all the youth programmes. So in the time there over the eight years, um, I had an, a female assistant coach that came on board. She also became a pro licence she had a master's degree in sports science. We brought in uh, an, an army fitness trainer who, who was a footballer, so he knew the football side of things as well. And we had better medical backup. And we had, again, more contact time. And we really started building up the youth program. So it was a, it was a hugely successful program. Uh, and I probably I had to leave after the eighth year um, because it was part funded by UEFA and they cut the funding. Right. And I also had... Um, my wife's brother, unfortunately, was was terminal at the time with, with cancer. Uh, and so I had to come home. But during that eight years, talking about managing family, you know, my family flew over many, many times. Pauline could come over because she worked shift work. She worked for the, the police. And we had loads and loads of what I would call quality yeah. time that we may not have got if I'd have carried on working 24-7 here in the UK. And undeniably, the experiences that I got in Estonia, so I did three World University Games in Serbia, in Shenzhen, in China, and in Russia. 
I've visited every country in Europe. I got to go to UEFA and FIFA workshops and conferences all over the world. Um, I went to as an observer to three World Cups and youth World Cups. Uh, that would never have happened hadn't I taken that yeah. jump. Um, and it loaded me with so much insight and experience that that it, it, it still amazes me now. But again, little twist, I never ever saw anything that you would say is rocket science or that much different than we do or teach, depending on who we are, of course. Definitely. I think some of the key things that you touched on there is you know, that that taking that leap of faith sometimes and just... Uh, tri- just go, just go with it if the opportunity is there. You know, there's a, there's a famous quote. I think it's Richard Branson says, you know, if you don't feel like you're ready for the opportunity, the opportunity arises. Just take it anyway. Uh, yeah, I think if you're a young coach, it's an absolute no-brainer. You know, if you get the chance, it's an absolute no-brainer. And I know there's like a guy called Matt Ward who works for this British coaches organisation that's encouraging people to go. But wherever you go, you know, even if it's it's China, Thailand, USA, Australia. Europe, if you get an opportunity to go to a different country, a different culture, it can only, even if you have a negative experience, it can only be a positive experience. Definitely. Because you're going to learn so much from it. If not about the game, you're going to learn so much about yourself. No, no, so I want to take you forward now to your current role um, with obviously uh, the Palace Foundation coach, as a coach development. You touched there just a little last bit there about the self-reflection. We'll talk about how important it is for coaches to do that self-reflection because sometimes you know we don't as you put it take stock sometimes um really pull away some of the key learners from each situation that we either are currently going through or that we've been through um both on a i guess on a from a professional perspective as a coach and then obviously on a personal perspective you know you've had a lot of situations you talked about there you know with your family life and whatnot where you've probably had to do some of that uh taking stock and you know do that self-reflection self-awareness would you mind just talking mm-hmm. to a little about that in terms of how important that really is for coaches if they are wanting to develop and maybe some practices or strategies you currently use and implement within your line of work that can help coaches do that? You know, there are key words and I'm sure you've used them yourself. You know, there are key words and, and I'm kind of still mentoring people now, even though the FA mentoring program is in disarray. I've been mentoring people for many, many years um, because it's what I enjoy doing and, and people ask for help, I'll try and help them in any way, shape or form I can. And I think there are key words like humility and honesty and integrity. Uh, and honesty and um, humility being the two stronger ones for me and it's being honest with yourself um, and knowing that, and even now, you know, again, I'm repeating my age 61, but I've been in the game 50 years and I'm still learning and I'm still humble enough to learn from everybody I work with. Now, that that could be somebody who's only a level one or a level two coach, but I'll still see something and I'll like that and I'll nick that and I'll adapt that. Uh, and what, what I found in this this new role, which was basically, it was devised by the uh, by my line manager there, Gary Mulcahy, who used to work at uh, Fulham in the past. And I've, I've known Gary for about 20 odd years on and off, but I hadn't come into contact with him until I applied for this role. Um, his concept there was that, you know, coaches do need that support mechanism. They do need to be continually developed. I think the sad part is 
uh, you'll find some that are really open to it, but you'll still find coaches that are closed because they 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 get that always getting that feeling that you're looking to criticise, you're looking to uh, to put them down, and and to convince them of that is a, is a major challenge in itself. And you know I'm not easily beaten, but you know I've, I've met one or two in this role that I, I couldn't win with. I couldn't change their their mindset. And no matter which approach I took, because they, again, it's like they they don't want to trust anybody else. They, uh, it, You can't afford to just be self-opinionated um, without being open to other people's views. And unfortunately, one or two of these guys are. Now, I could quote you a really famous character that is, that is massively self-opinionated and no one can argue with um, who's involved in football and, um, periodization, Mr. Yeah. Vahayan, um, because he was on my pro license. But actually, when I met him on my pro license, I, I found him a quite amicable guy and I found him quite uh, amusing. Um, but I also known people that have had uh, run ins with him or upset him or disagreed with him. And there's no way you'll change his views or his beliefs. I've, I mean, I've been, I've been witness to quite um, a few of those. Uh... Yeah. So, you know, you, you know yourself, he, he won't budge. Um, and it takes somebody really special to get him to do that. But there aren't many like him. But you can almost say because of his depth of knowledge and experience, he's got a basis to argue the fact that he's right. But, you know, his methodology, as you know, is more geared towards people that have got full-time contact with yeah. players. Um, so if you're an amateur coach or a semi-professional coach trying to get your head around that, you're going to struggle. So... But in general, I think if you're a young coach that's learning the game or, or you're still looking to move on in your qualifications or your experience, you're t you, you need to be able to trust people that have had that experience and especially if they're willing to share it. Now, I'm, you know, I, I don't blow my own trumpet and you speak to other people, including I'd like to think Peter is, it's, you know, that they'll tell you that I'm probably one of the most open people that, that you'll spoke you'll speak to in sharing everything I've got and everything I've ever done. Um, you know, I don't look, uh, yeah, I've written a couple of books, kids books, and I've, you know, I've had, I've done stuff for other people and then they've stuck it on Amazon for a fiver or something, but I, I don't get any money out of that. And I don't look to make money out of anything that I, I publish or, or put on. And even the kids books that I did, I was on a minimal, like 5%. The publishers took the money for that. But I wanted the books out there because they were attractive and, and you know people yeah. could use them. So, but anybody asks me for anything, if I haven't got it, I'll find it, um, or I'll ask somebody else that I know knows it, and then they'll feed the information back to them. And, and sometimes I just sit and listen, or we'll talk like me and you yeah. are talking now. Um, and for me, that's what coaching is. It's a, it's a sharing. It's a sharing profession. And yeah, we're all thieves. You know, that's again a cliche and a quote that I don't think anyone will argue with. We all steal each other's ideas. But I'm still that firm believer that this kind of conversation we're having and meeting people face to face whenever you can and doing these days where coaches actually meet and see each other are far more beneficial than anything online, anything on YouTube, even all the webinars, as much as they have great information, it's not the same as being yeah. there. And, you know, I'm, I'm so, so adamant about that. And 
And again, as you may have known, if you've recently, I'm still president. I'm very proud to be president of the Surrey Coaches Association. And, and we still try and run days at Fulham. Uh, we were before COVID, you know, kind of monthly, bi-monthly. We invite good coaches down. You know, we would regularly have people like uh, Dick Pate, God rest him, when he was around. And we've had Mark Robson, Wayne Burnett and um, Chrissy Ramsey. And, 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 you know, getting people to those events, networking, face-to-face, -face, chatting, talking. That's what that's what it's about. It's not about, you know, looking at little squares on a screen. Definitely. Um, no, I just want to, you know, just on yeah. your role there then, you know, you probably saw in your time in coaching and now with your role, talk there about the frustrations of having that coach in particular where, you know, you just couldn't get round to the change in their mindset and whatnot. just want to, you know, kind of mm. leading on from that, what would you say one of your biggest bugbears are when it comes to coaching? I, I, I think it is people, the, the very few people I have to say that I meet that, that are like that, that are... I'm not even going to say they're, you can't even say they're too proud. They're, they're, for some reason, which I can't fathom, they're fearful. They're fearful of people with greater knowledge or potentially greater knowledge. And I think that's that's been said before. But if you speak to the best coaches, even the top, top level, they want to be challenged. You know, they, they want somebody that actually can tell them sometimes that's not right. Now, obviously, depending on the tone you're going to use, but they don't want to just go along, randomly plodding along, doing what they're doing and always thinking they're doing the right thing without actually realising maybe they're not because no one's mm. telling them. You know, I'm, I'm helping out a little bit now, again, down at, um, with the Charlton Women's Programme uh, and the coach down there is a guy called Ratish Mishra. Um, he's an A license. He's a very, very accomplished coach, very good coach. And But we've had some conversations even recently on pre-season um, on recruitment of players. And, you know, I've said, well, you know, with all due respect, in, in one instance, I said, I don't, I don't agree with this, this and this. And he said, good, I don't want you to agree. Um, you know, but as long as you tell him why you don't agree. And, and I think that's it. And I think Pete is the same at Carl Shorten. And I was the same as head coach at Charlton. I had uh, three different uh, coaches alongside me who was always prepared to challenge me and I wouldn't bite their head off. At Watford, you know, uh, at Charlton, the last one I had there was Matt Beard. At Watford, I had Alberto Curti. In, in Estonia, I had this, this uh, female coach, Catherine Cara, who was very, very knowledgeable. And I, I would always value their opinion. If you're the decision maker, you still have to make the decision after that. But you need those other opinions. You otherwise, you're still going to take responsibility if the mistakes happen, whether you've taken their their advice or not, or even if you've listened to your players. Let's just let's just look at it that way. If you give your players a say in what you do and your decision making at different levels, you're the one that still has to take the brunt if it goes wrong. But that's part and parcel of the job. But you need that input. You cannot make every single decision alone. You can't. And you can say you can live or die, you know, you fall on your sword if you do. But you can't. If you're going to be any chance of success and, and how you want to gauge success, whether it's developmental, whether it's actually trophies, you, know, if you, you need people alongside you that you can trust. You need people to be reliable, honest, 
and loyal. And there goes that word honest again. You need your trusted colleagues to be honest with you, not to patronize you, not to say what they think you mm. want to hear. You need them to tell you the truth. Definitely. You know, just on, on that then, you know, speaking of telling the truth and being reflective and being open and honest, you know, as we start to yeah. wind down now, if you could turn back the time and obviously speak to Keith Burness, age 18, he's been thrown into coaching because he's the oldest player in the group. And then obviously later on, you know, a few years further down the line has been, I guess, looked at coaching as a more of a career. What will be the, what will be the messages that you'd want to give them? It's hard because it's that you know now what you didn't know yeah. then. Um, if I knew then what I know now, it would be... But because times have changed, it's actually different anyway. Back then, it wasn't uh, as open a profession as it is now. And I think that's a plus factor now. The younger coaches now might feel they're hard sure. done by, but back then when we were young coaches, there was no information. There was no other courses. There was no extra courses. There was nothing online. Okay. Well, um, so we didn't get to know that information. So... Yeah, if, you, if I base it purely and simply if I, if on my I own experience, twist on that and say, on. right, if you had an eighteen-year-old yeah. coach who'd been thrown into that circumstance now, because they're the oldest group right now, based on today's, uh, you know, today's climate, what would your message be for that person? First of all, find a mentor. Right. First of all, find a mentor. Find, find someone. That you can learn now, from. This is the key thing, right? Because this is a conversation I've had with a few people regarding the whole mentor thing and getting a mentor. I think I, I totally agree mm. with you. I think finding a mentor is very crucial. But I think it's also important, um, and it'll be interesting your thoughts on this and how how important it actually is to do some maybe reflection in the initial stages before you even get yourself a mentor to know maybe where you feel that you need to be mentored or could be mentored. Yeah, it was an 18-year-old. I think that's quite difficult to get an 18-year-old who's still a teenager to understand that process. And, and obviously that could be taught uh, initially in IE college university programs. And I think if they're at that educational level, it probably is. But, but doing IDPs and stuff like that, um, unless they're involved in an educational system, that probably won't happen. Yeah. So if you're saying willy-nilly, where I was chucked into it randomly and I hadn't had that. Now, now that's obviously possible. Self-reflection, you know, back in the day, again, when, when I was a kid, we kept a diary. I don't know how many kids do that now. I don't think they do. So, you know, it was a normal thing to have a diary. Um, but now you can keep a diary on your phone. You can keep a voice diary. But who tells an 18-year-old that they can do that? So you're right in a sense that it's an integral part of it, but who tells the 18-year-old that's what you yeah. should be doing? So unless it's unless it's a, an inherent part of the system, uh, I'm not sure how you're going to get there. And, and I'm going to bounce back onto something I spoke about a few weeks ago on the mental health side of it. I, I actually suggested there should be in every coaching course now, as well as there is the emergency aid and the safeguarding, there should be a, a mental health workshop in every course now. Um, but yeah, who tells the 18 year old, um, if you, you know, answer that question for me, if you can, because I'm not sure who. Well, I, th I think just um, touching on that, I think it's a very good point. I think you could talk to the whole coach education pathway and how much emphasis there should be on those elements in there. 
you know, I think there's so many yeah. other things, you know, as, as good as the college education system is, and I think it has developed massively over the lot of, you know, recent years, and probably you've, you know, as you've touched, you've seen all the changes, so I've only probably only seen them in the last 10 years since I've started coaching, but there's yeah. so many other things that, you know, as, as we start to kind of go through time, you know, all the different disciplines are being brought together, and some, there's still some other areas that probably could still be further developed on as well, and I think, you know, coming back to your question, who tells the 18-year-old, I think, what I would say to that is the 18-year-old should be yeah, as difficult. I know you say it's challenging and it's difficult, but I think if someone's consciously stepping into an environment, um, they should be asking the questions. Um, it, it, yeah, you're right, but it, isn't that based around environment, where they are, who's who's taught them earlier years, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm, I'm totally agreeing with you. I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not arguing the point. I'm just looking at all the different scenarios um, because it is, you know, even if they're doing basic education, they still have to do these reflection exercises, et cetera. But no one tells them how important that is. I think they just, they do it because they've got to do it. They don't actually get them to understand how important that could be to look back on in a month's time, in two months' time, in three months' time. And that's where I go back to that. You know, when even now when I've coached, i.e. post-16, we've given the players a diary and said, I want that filled in every day, not just about your football, Definitely. by the way. You know, and we've produced a booklet you know, with, with, yes, with information in it, but with pages where they can write down, what did you do outside of football? What did you do? How did you feel that day? You know, what else have you done? And, and, and we did it in Estonia with the national team program with all the youth players. And a few of them came back with a, a diary as thick as Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, Cause they literally wrote everything. Um, maybe in some cases too much, but it was in Estonian. So I didn't always read it. Um, my assistant did, but, for me, I think it's great Definitely. practice. So I'm totally in agreement with you. My, my concern is um, so many are not going to get that that teaching and that advice unless we really strongly integrate it into into the academy systems, into and, and how do you do it into the grassroots game, which is obviously where it could trigger yeah. people in well, the grassroots game. Into, into this, into yeah, into becoming even better at what they do. Because for me, it, you know, even the mentoring it isn't, isn't just linked and coach education isn't just linked to the FA. And, and the FA now, you know, none of us know what's going on. Um, it's very, very confusing right now. And some of the things I'm hearing with, you know, the CCDs and stuff like that, I was, I'm supposed to be tutoring on a B licence right now and I haven't got a clue what's happening to it and none of my students have. Um, it hasn't started. It was due to start in June. And I don't know if or when it's going to happen. So I've got guys that were given to me as a potential cohort that are, are in limbo yeah. at the moment. Um, but I always say that, you know, the word CPD, and we kind of covered this with the Surrey coaches, CPD shouldn't just be about you giving points on your FA license club. It should be something you should be doing automatically. Definitely. And, and whenever anybody's doing a demonstration day, yeah, some people are charging 70 quids and 40 quids and blah, blah, blah. That's, but, isn't it? You know, I've run those days, I've run those days down at Carl Shorten for free. Um, again, because I enjoy it. Yeah. I actually enjoy yeah. those days. 
So, you know, somebody, you know, it's, it's, but yeah, even if it's an event where you're paying money, you know, make sure you know who's on the event and if they're value for money. But I think most, most true educators would gladly, gladly give that advice and give those days free of charge. Like when we do them at Surrey Coaches, every, every coach we've ever had there has never asked for money. You know, we, we might give them a bit of petrol money and a bottle of wine. But when you've had somebody of the likes of, of Mark Robson, who's England under 18 coach, Dick Bate, who, who is, you know, is one of the classiest coaches and best that, that there was, you know, he's not asking for money. Frankie O'Brien coming down from Chelsea, not asking for money. Chris Ramsey, not asking for money. They're coming yeah. down because they're colleagues and they're part of the coaching family. And, and I think if you're a true coach, you become part of that. I'm going to call it a worldwide family because I've got coaches who are friends around the world right now through my own experiences, yeah. you know, and I'm talking about literally around the world and I class them all as I call them, my, I call them that my coaching family um, and they're friends, they're coaching friends. They're obviously not on your one hand of your close knit friends, but they're friends. And there are people I could actually write a private message to and say, hey, what do you think? You know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And again, I've had people that are on courses, again, asking me independently, um, the course isn't challenging me. Can you set me a different challenge? So, you know, they, they're doing a course and they've been given this task, and, and but they're saying to me, that's too easy for me. Can you twist that and make it more difficult for me? And why do you want to do that? Because I want to be challenged, uh, which is quite a strange one. But then you, you'll add something to it. Um, so it's, it, yeah, it's 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 a it's a fantastic community to be part of. Um, my journey has obviously come from grassroots right the way through, from pub Sunday league football to to having a pro license, and and I did this when I did the presentation with Soccer Social. Um, you know, and, and I'm involved on the mentoring program with with uh, with Butch Pfizer at the moment on the the BAME group for hopefully to get a couple onto the next the next day yeah. license. That's a very interactive group, um, and some of the topics on there are very very deep. But it's it, Butch is really hot on the IDP stuff yeah. that you're talking about, and they've been they've been really pushed to yeah. produce that, but. Yeah, you're going down exactly the right route, but to filter that down, um, to get grassroots guys to, to do that, you know, whenever I run a CPD event, I always tell them you should be keeping a record of what you're doing. You need to go back. But there's ways of there's ways of reflecting and ways of evaluating. And I think if you ask a real high percentage of people when do you do your, your evaluation, it's probably sitting in the car yeah. on the way home. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of people do you know, mull over, and I think a lot of people, even when it comes to just things like reflections, things like planning, I think they've got ideas, but maybe it's just that concept of putting pen to paper or putting, putting you know, a oh, exactly or a voicemail, and I think that, I think just documenting it in some way will just make it a bit more concrete. Of course, it does. If it's like it's, it's, it's a saying again, isn't it? If it's not written, it didn't happen. Exactly. You know, that, that's quite a strong saying that somebody actually quoted to me earlier on today. If it's not written down, it didn't happen. Definitely, definitely. I, I think there's a slogan for you, but, um, <laughs> um, you but know, yeah. Just, just on a you know, last note then, you know, you've talked about it there a little bit. Um, 
about finding a mentor, but you know, if you had sixty seconds now, kind of leave the listeners with one golden nugget, what would that be? Oh, do it because you love it. Do it with passion. Um, and believe in yourself, and and know, know that. You know, and this is a quote from my own mother. This one, and this is one I've I've lived with all my my life. If you give something and benefit one in ten of the people whose lives you touch, you've done something massive. You've done something massive, and hopefully it'll be more than that. But one in ten is my minimum. Brilliant. Um, just you know, on a final note, I just want to say thank you to you again, Keith, for your time this evening. Um, been a fantastic conversation for me in particular. If you had any uh, social media handles where the listeners could potentially get in touch, yeah, the Twitter the Twitter account is at Talon Grizzly T A L I N Grizzly, all one word. Um, if you're asking why that is, it's because I, I lived in Tal while in Estonia, and my nickname was a Grizzly Bear or a Teddy Bear, depending on what mood I was in. So that's where that handle came from. Facebook under my own name, quite happy for people to private message on there uh, or request friendship as long as they're from the coaching community. Um, there are a couple of dormant pages on Facebook called Pro Soccer Mentor and uh, I think In Fact, but um, you might find them connected to my name somewhere, but they're, they're dormant. They have got some good information on them. Um and yeah, by all means, you know, I'm quite happy if people ask you directly for my uh, email address. I'm quite happy for you to give it to them. Well, there you have it, guys. It's another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series, where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.